God indeed is speaking to his people. The Lord has never stopped. He has given to us his word, but he doesn't speak alone through scripture. He speaks through scripture proclaimed. He speaks through the preaching of his word. And when the preaching of God's word is done in truth, is done according to his word, it is the Lord who speaks. He speaks to us, not only as we turn our attention in the reading, but as well the preaching of his word. Let us give to him our full attention. That is who we approach. We approach him. We will be reading from his word, Luke 3, Luke 3, 1 to 20. It can be found on page 1091 in your pew Bibles. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Father, we just sang of you speaking to us. And we pray, even in this brief prayer, that you would calm our minds. We are creatures and we are weak. We are those who are still in fighting sin. We are those who still battle a sinful nature. We are even those who are weak and and battle the weakness of our flesh. And we pray, give to us strength of mind. May we understand May you bless the words that are spoken. May they be true and accurate according to your word. And may we apply them to our life. May they change our hearts and produce praise and honor to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 3, 1-20 In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, 
But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. That's as far as we will read from God's word this morning. May he bless it to our life. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What a question. What a question, he says to the crowds. Those who spill out, coming to him to hear him preach, to be baptized by him. And his response, who warned you to flee from this wrath? This is something similar to this question. Why are you here? Why have you come? I guess it's a question that we should then ask of ourselves, shouldn't we? Why are we here? Why have we come? And even that question leads automatically to another. On on what basis are we planning to escape the wrath to come? That's all throughout this text. John is warning and saying, hey, the wrath is coming and who warned you to flee? And what do you plan to do? And so the same is true for us in a sense, and not even in a sense. We are truly here now because we are fleeing from the wrath to come. Are we not? We, we believe in the Lord, and we come to him, and we worship him, and we do that, hopefully, because we love him, because we want to glorify him, we want to serve him. But all of that is as well conveyed in the fact that we are fleeing judgment. We are fleeing a coming wrath. But on what are we setting our hopes? How do we know that we're safe? Are we living such a life that would produce fruits of repentance? That's what John is saying. Should we not ask of what we're fleeing and how we're planning to escape it? That's the answer of life itself. That's the most important question you could ask, and thus the most needed answer that can be given. How are you planning to escape the judgment, to escape the wrath? And we'll see as we go through that answer, we'll see that the wrath to come is not escaped by membership, but through sincere repentance and cleansing in the mighty one to come. We'll see that as we go through. We'll see first, as we look at this chapter, John's prophetic introduction, John's the witness to John as a prophet, and then we'll see the sermons that he preaches, and then the one who is mightier than him. And so first, in these first six verses of chapter 3, an introduction to John, a prophetic introduction. Chapter 3 is a transition. We've, we've covered all the birth narratives now. We've covered Jesus' early life. And so chapter 3 is a transition and a bridge. It's a bridge from the early life, and now we're walking across a bridge to Christ and his ministry. But before getting there, you have the bridge. You have what you have to cross over. John is that bridge. John is that last prophet of the Old Testament preparing the way. And so to get to Christ, you walk through John. That's what happened. He prepared the way. The Gospels are written to emphasize Christ, but they show us properly that John was very significant in his ministry. John had 
tons of influence. You can see that. We not only read of these crowds gathering, and notice how they're from every segment of the society here. You have just the crowds. That's just describing everyone. Then you have tax collectors, and you have soldiers, all of whom are coming out into the wilderness, into barren areas, to hear him preach, to be baptized by him. But the gospel show his influence as well. Later in Luke, in Luke 20, verse 6, there's that time when the scribes come, the Pharisees and scribes come, and they challenge Jesus. And then Jesus asks them and says, was, was John's baptism from heaven or from men? And the Pharisees in, John 20 verse, in Luke 20, verse 6, are, are so afraid to go against what John said because the people believed he was a prophet. They're so afraid of that and his influence that they say, we don't know. These very proud men would rather plead ignorance than face perhaps the stoning of the people because they knew that John was a prophet. John was very significant. He's preparing the way. They indicate John's strong influence. And the, the, the text does as well, giving him the standard prophetic introduction. It's standard to, in the Old Testament, to introduce a prophet by giving the leaders of that time, those who are of significance. Not only does this place John in a true and historical setting, it also is bringing up people who will appear later in Jesus' own ministry. But you see there, here are the leaders, here are those in place, and then you have John. And that's the way he's introduced showing that he's a prophet. The word of God during the lifetime of these important men, and yet the text isn't highlighting them. They're just background to provide a a, a significant timetable and context for John. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And then the introduction of John is hammered home with this quotation from Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 40, verses 4 and 5. It sets John in the context of Isaiah and the gospel. It sets John in the context of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is that transition, that transition from the the exile and punishment to 40, which is comfort, comfort my people. And the Lord brings and declares the coming of his deliverance. And so the coming of John and the way that he's preparing is alluding back to a text that is all about the deliverance and comfort of the people. Here's John, and he's preparing the way. How does he prepare the way? Well, this is our second point. That first one was just introductory to who John was. But now we'll spend a large portion of what John says. This is fleeing the wrath to come. This is his sermon where he's preaching and preparing the way. His preaching is stark. It's stark, he calls them the brood of vipers. We read that, and John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That in and of itself is stark. A message to the people of God, to the chosen ones. Repent, you need to be cleansed. That's not what you'd expect. You would not expect the the chosen people to hear that. You would think, as they were just thinking, we just need the Messiah to come. We just need the kingdom. We just need the one to to lead us on. We just got to get this ball rolling and we'll we'll get things fine. But no, they need to be cleansed. They need to be baptized. What is John's baptism? Well, it's a baptism of repentance. I don't believe John's baptism is the same as our Christian baptism. There are some similarities. Both ultimately point to Christ. 
Both are directed towards him, so there are certainly similarities, but Christian baptism is associated with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and beyond. Christian baptism is associated with the name of the triune God. It is rather that likely during the intertestamental period that there had developed in Judaism a practice of a ritual cleansing of some kind, some kind of baptism. And that's what's developed. And John is coming and saying, you need this cleansing, a cleansing, and you need to repent. John enacts his role as a forerunner to Jesus, and it is said he preaches this baptism and a need for forgiveness, telling the Jewish people that. And notice the, the, the area where he is. Where is he? He's in the wilderness, yes, but where? The wilderness around the Jordan. And that should bring into our minds the entrance of the people into the land, another type of baptism. This sort of second Red Sea crossing, where figuratively speaking, the people are cleansed and washed, and, and even, as a later text would say, they have died in that sense. That's what happened in the Red Sea through Moses, and that appears again in this crossing of the Jordan, and he's near the Jordan, and this is where he's saying they need to be cleansed, they need to repent. His preparation, his preaching and his preparation for Christ is a message that says you need to divest yourself. You need to set aside any thought that you are entitled, owed salvation, or that you right now stand in salvation. No, you need to repent and you need to bear fruit of your repentance strong sermon on even the importance of works. The Gospels paint a picture of the covenant people who placed much of their faith in that standing they had, in that they were part of the chosen race. They were descendants of Abraham. They were going to be saved. In fact, they ought to be saved because they had the promises of God. And it was true they had the promises of God, but they were not entitled to salvation Without a cleansing and a repentance, they weren't entitled to anything without faith. They also believed a lot of their own works would keep them in that place. And so you had this mixture of we are entitled and owed, we're the chosen ones, and and we are certainly safe because look how pure we are, look how much we keep the law. That was the Pharisees. So you have this mixture and John is coming to say, no, all of you need to be cleansed and you better bear the right works. You better show that you are truly repentant. It's not about merely external covenant membership. It's not about that. And so, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And then he warns that, hey, the axe is at the tree. He's preparing the way. He's saying, you're all trees here. And the axe is laid at the root of it, ready to swing and cut it down. And any tree that doesn't bear good fruit, any tree that doesn't produce fruit of repentance, that doesn't show that they are true believers, that doesn't have that being produced and verified in their works, he says that axe will cut you down. John's message is that warning, one, to display a real faith but the importance of works in that. Works are, are very important with faith. Not as the basis of it, but as the, the verification of it. And if you don't produce fruits, 
keeping with repentance, then have you repented? And the answer is, of course, no. If you're not living a godly life, then you show that your faith is worthless. And probably a faith more like the one of Ab- those who are saying, we have Abraham as our, as our father. We're good because of that standing. We're good because of that covenant relationship. But the, the covenant people of God, this has always been the case, the true covenant people of God are not those who had the external mark of circumcision and no more but rather whose hearts had been circumcised. And when your heart had been circumcised, you live according to God's will. He's preparing the way. You show you are ready. You see, the king is coming. And we have a bunch of dead trees around. And when he comes, he's coming and he's going to lop off anyone who claims that they're his and yet are dead trees and don't produce fruit. It's stark. We need to hear the same message. Do we hope in mere association? Upon what is the pillar of our faith sunk? Is it sunk in Christ alone and a true repentance? Or is our faith really an empty statement and a belief in some other way of being saved? Something that gets us not even part of the way. Something that doesn't even bring us anywhere close to Christ. Why have you come? Who told you to flee from the wrath, people of God, and upon what are you fleeing? If you come to God and if you come to worship him because it's how you're raised, you won't escape the wrath to come. If it's just because that's the way you've always done it, well, you're no better than these who are the dead trees. We say we're rooted in Abraham. This is our tradition. This is our life. This makes us who we are. That won't save you. Do you think you're okay because you're a member of a Bible-believing church? Is it in that membership? Well, no, you won't be saved by that. That's not what saves you. If you think the wrath will pass you by because you're a good conservative Protestant, you have nothing because God can raise good conservative Protestants from the tiles at your feet. That doesn't save you. If you come just because you like what the church is doing, it's a nice time. It gives me hope. It gives me comfort. Yes, it does. But do you have faith? Are you repentant? Or is the church something you seek merely like a band-aid, merely like a medication? I can go there and, and take that, and it's going to make me feel better. Without a true faith, you don't escape the wrath to come. And no matter how much you like what Christianity has to offer, no matter how much you even might just externally live it, if there isn't a true faith there, if there isn't true repentance there, it makes no difference. You come because you like singing and you like fellowship. You like the body of believers. You like that it's a family and we are a family and it's great to be part of that family, and it is, but you know what? You're going to lose it. You'll lose that family and you are never truly apart. Because it only comes through repentance and faith in the mightier one to come. John's not preaching works righteousness, but he is preaching works. And what he's saying is these works show the righteousness of your repentance, the truth of your repentance. That you are to be baptized. Even that, he's, he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. He's showing you you need cleansing. And as we started with the service, that means it's not on law-keeping. 
It's not that law-keeping is the thing that saves. No, rather you need cleansing and baptism. You need to be baptized with the mightier one coming. That's his message. But he's using that and showing that works are so important in showing you, are you truly saved? As well as the prompting of our faith. How do you prepare to the one to, for, to come? How do you prepare for Christ? Live a godly life. And is that any different than what we are called to do now? How do we prepare for his coming? Seek his kingdom. Bear fruits keeping with repentance. It's, it's not the standing. We don't come to God and say, hey, I've kept the fruit, so I'm, I'm allowed in. No. But because we are in Christ already, because we are baptized with the mightier one and been baptized in his spirit, we have the fruits. And we prepare the way for him by living righteously before him. If we stand on anything else, as verse 9 says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so in answer to this question, who, who told you to flee from this wrath? Why are you here? The people then ask, what then shall we do? And here's our third point, sincere repentance or bearing good fruit. This is verses 10 to 13. This is when John directs application at every one of the questions, at the crowds, the tax collectors, and soldiers. These are the representatives of those who are coming before him. This is what he says. The crowds say, what shall we do? Verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. That should strike us as odd. At least as, as we are here, Reformed believers. And, I, and I, I want to be clear here. I am not saying John is preaching something wrong. Clearly. I'm not saying he's preaching something against what we believe as Reformed believers. But I want us to see that our response would probably not be that. Just in what we're steeped in. Our response, what should we do? We would say, well, place your faith in Christ. And that's not a wrong answer, and nor am I saying that's not where we should direct it. I'm trying to show us what John's doing and how it should raise us and cause us to stop and say, look at the importance of what he's doing here. It is faith in Christ, and that is where we direct our attention. That's where John is. But notice where he goes first. What should you do? He asks basically, well, do you have true faith? And is it shown? Is really what he's asking. How, how do you prepare for the coming? Well, you who have two tunics, share with him who has none. That's a strange answer, right? If you were to come and say, to, you'd, you'd ask me, well, how am I to be saved? And I tell you, you know, the one preaching, I'm up here, and I tell you, you who have two shirts, give the one shirt to someone who needs it. What John is doing is highlighting the importance of, of righteousness as the verification of our faith. Showing it to be true. Showing that those who repent, what is repentance? What is true conversion? True conversion is through faith, yes, but true conversion is a putting to death the old life and a coming to life of the new. It's a turning. Repentance implies that turning away from what is wrong to what is good. And so he's saying, live. Live in obedience to the Lord. The tunic like here is likely referring to what they had as an undergarment. This undergarment was basically a short undershirt worn underneath a, lo a longer outer garment. Usually both were worn, but it wasn't necessary. And so what he's saying here is take that uh, one garment that you have, that one tunic that you have, that is nice and is useful, that you wear, but take it because you have extra there and give it to the one who has nothing. 
Give him that shirt. Give him that tunic. John is saying that members of the crowd should seek to clothe any of them they notice that has not. And that they should do the same with food. It's, he, he immediately points it on to what are they doing in their brotherly love to each other? Are they serving one another? Are they living in obedience? It reflects a concern for one's neighbor. It reflects the obedience to the law, which is summarized in the term to love God and to love your neighbor. And this is how you do it. His, his point is bear fruit showing repentance. And that's so key. What it's showing is not your righteousness that you offer to God. It's showing your repentance. The need that you have that you know you're a sinner and you repent. You look to God for salvation. John's answer for how to prepare for the coming judgment is that they must surrender all false securities, anything else that they would look to, whether it be food or clothes, they must surrender all and not trust in any of that. They are rather to give it away. This is as if you are saying, show it in your bank balance. John defines true righteousness in terms of this care, this social justice. And I don't mean that in the charged sense it's so used today. I mean it in the sense of love of your neighbor. Doing what is loving to them, true social justice. Treating others with the love that Christ treats us. If they can't give the shirt away, they don't own the shirt. It owns them. If they aren't willing to part with these things, it shows that they have greater idols, that Christ isn't alone with them. Would you be put off if the answer to your question, what shall I do to escape the coming wrath, you ask someone of that, would you be put off if they said, show me your checkbook, show me your bank account? And many of us would. And that's, in essence, what John's doing. Can you imagine? Take that undergarment you have and give it to someone else. It shows the fullness of repentance. And so that's what he says to the crowds. What about the tax collectors? Teachers, what shall we do? And he says to them in verse 13, Collect no more than you are authorized to. Taxes in the Roman Empire were complex. They included many different taxes. There's taxes of citizens' income, of harvest, of a sales tax. There was even tolls for when you traveled. This system had multiple collectors who would often add their own surcharges. In fact, it seems like that was the practice. They'd up what the tax was so that they could pocket more of it. We know from Zacchaeus that they were in fact doing that, that they were robbing others. That's what Jews considered tax collectors. They considered them robbers. They considered the laws robbery. In fact, Jews would excommunicate tax collectors. This is why they hated them so much. They were a representation of a pagan Gentile power, and they were those who were robbing them, taking from them, charging things they couldn't pay. I wonder if we can relate to anger with taxes. I think we can we really angry with taxes. I'm not opening, I guess I did open that can of worms. I'm not going to delve into that, but just merely say we can relate to anger with taxes, especially when they're unjust. These tax collectors, in that sense, they were living, many of them, in fact, we could probably say all of them in this sense, this general sense, were living wicked lives of robbery. And what does John say? Collect no more than you are authorized to do your job rightly. Do what glorifies God and where you're at in your situation, in your vocation. Do what God has called you to do. John doesn't call them to quit their job. 
says for them to perform it as they should. And then the soldiers ask him the same question. He says, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. These soldiers are likely those from the the Jews. That's not to exclude Roman soldiers either, but what this is most likely referring to is soldiers, Jewish soldiers from Antipas' army. This is likely referring to the Judean, and you could you could say police force, those who were there and, and kept the peace, soldiers who would accompany the tax collectors and enforce that. They assisted in these things, and the possibility for abuse by those who have that authority is there. We, we know that. We see it still. Those who have the power, those who have the might, they could extort, they could threat, they could force. And that's likely what often happened. And these soldiers would do that. And John is saying to them, don't use your power to do any of that. Don't defraud. Don't steal. Do your job in a God-glorifying way. If a repentant person, you see, they are living in true repentance. They live a godly life. They live obediently. This isn't works Righteousness, this is true repentance. This is very similar to what James does in chapter 2. We went through that several months ago. It's all about true repentance. But we spend a lot of time making sure we get that right, as we ought to do. We should spend a lot of time clarifying that, because we know we, we are so easily drawn away into some type of works righteousness, and we've got to be clear that the Bible isn't saying that. But I don't want that to detract from that, that weight we should feel and the strength we should feel of his call for works, of his call for obedient living. That that's his answer to their question, how do we, how do we respond? Are you obedient? Are you living in such a way that shows you are repentant and you know that you have salvation only by grace, and so you are gracious to others. Do you love God so that you will serve him only because of that purpose, and that would be displayed in the love that you have for your neighbor to give even of the fundamentals of your own life to them? What does this mean? Well, it means students, you are to bear fruit of repentance by doing your best work for God's glory. You see what he's doing? He's taking every segment of the society and he's saying, do Christ-like living, do lawful living, do obedient living, fruit of keeping with repentance, where you're at, live that way. So, students, what does this mean? It means you don't just pursue studies for a GPA. In fact, ultimately, how you perform and that GPA doesn't matter. What matters is how you're doing it. It means you're doing your best work, not what just can get by. It means you're devoting yourself fully to what you can do, to do it well, because you're not serving your teacher, and you're not serving the institution, nor are you serving your parents, you're serving God. What does that mean when we're out with friends and we're at the bar? How do we live with fruit of repentance? Are we showing and displaying our fruit of repentance and how controlled we are? That we don't have more than what we should. That we don't flirt with a line that we shouldn't flirt with. That we show we are disciplined and in control. We know when to stop. We know how to talk. We know how to goof around and joke in a clean way. We bear fruit keeping with repentance. What does that mean when you're watching TV and watching movies and your entertainment? 
What does that mean there? Do we bear fruits keeping with repentance? Do we show a pure life? Do we show a wise life? Are we living in the knowledge that we are Christ's? And do we obey him in all that we do, in all that we consume, in all that we watch? Or have we let that slip? What does that mean when we're shopping at the grocery store and the kids are being very annoying and the cart is squeaking? You always find that, right? You take that cart and the front wheel's just going, you're pushing it down and you're like, now I'm stuck. Now I'm going around the whole store with this. And so the front wheel's squeaking, the kids are annoying, it's cold outside, you pick the wrong line, it's getting very long. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean you are allowed to be frustrated and annoyed? To snap? The, the possible applications to this, as you can see, are indeed endless. But live obediently, live repentance. You see, living in repentance is not simply, God, I'm sorry. That's the first step. But that didn't mean anything if you don't also live it. Certainly we won't live that perfectly, but that's the pursuit. Otherwise, when we come before God and say, I'm so sorry, I repent, it isn't a true repentance. You see, it is the quality of that heart that shows the truth of repentance, and this is where John leads. But he leads to the conclusion, and this is our final point, one mightier than I. So as much as he's He's pounding the importance of your righteous living and the fruits you produce. It's leading to one mightier than I, verses 16 and 17. Remember, before I read those verses, that this is all in the context of a baptism of repentance. So it isn't alone him calling them to live this way. It's, it's in all the surrounding context that they are coming to be cleansed. And so what does he say in verses 16 and 17? John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Still this this preaching of a division, this preaching of he who will come, but he will offer something. John shows his humility here. He shows as these people are coming to him, and again, this shows his influence, which we, we often don't realize. They think he's the Messiah, or could be. In fact, from what we see here, it would seem that John could have, could have sinfully proclaimed himself as such and instantly had a very large following. That's how influential he was. And to show them that that's not the case, to show that he is this bridge of a prophet, he tells them that he is mightier and he's coming. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. That was the lowest task of the lowest slave. Jewish slaves would not perform that task. It was not expected of a Jewish slave that they would have to bend down and untie the sandals caked with all the matter of grime and gunk, and you could imagine that is on the feet. It wasn't for them to do that. And so for John to say, no, I am not the Messiah, the one who's coming who's mightier than me, I'm not worthy to do the lowest of the slave's tasks for him. It's a resounding endorsement. 
a show of his humility, a show of his witness. And so he says, I'm not him. And then he even says, I'm baptizing you with this water. I'm baptizing you in this way, preparing for repentance. But he's coming with a baptism that truly divides. And what I'm talking about, this is what John is saying, what I'm talking about, about this axe laid to the root of the trees, that's going to happen when he comes because he's coming and you'll either be baptized with the Spirit and your wheat and you'll be taken into his barn, you're part of his harvest, or you're baptized with fire, and you'll be burned because you're chaff. It's John's message. His baptism is one of shadow. His baptism is one that points to Christ, one who is the reality, but the reality is coming. You see, all of this shows that central point of this text, the wrath to come is not escaped by external membership, but through sincere repentance and cleansing in the mighty one to come. There's John's message. The one mightier than he is here. John's message is heavy-hitting. It's one that we better heed. As we come in here today, we ask that question, why are we here and how are we escaping the judgment to come? And it isn't on our standing, and it isn't on our works, but it is in baptism through the Spirit. And how, how does that happen? Well, it's through faith. And repentance. Repenting of sin. Cleansing in this mighty one to come. All that leads to a summary statement of verse 18. It says, of John's ministry, of all his sermons, of all he's doing. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. I, when you read that, I don't know that I would want to describe that as good news upon an initial reading, would you? What I, what I mean there is we, we get uncomfortable with such sermons. We get uncomfortable with such messages that begin with, you brood of vipers. We'd get uncomfortable with that message that, hey, he's coming and he has an axe and he's coming with fire and he's dividing. And only those to be saved are here. And all else will be burned. But the gospel describes this as good news. If we needed a proof text for preaching sin, salvation, and service, here it is. Preaching of the, the, the danger of sin, and he doesn't mince his words. You're chaffed to be burned because of your sin. And then he gives the offer and the message of salvation and the mightier one to come, the Messiah. That's what he's saying. The Messiah is coming. And he will bring the baptism of the Spirit. He will bring cleansing. And that's salvation. But then we see all the, the marks of service. Bear the fruit of repentance. Show the truth of your faith. Live a godly life. Good news is described that way because it really is. I've used a similar illustration before, but imagine that you were standing where there would be, let's say, the flow of traffic, and you didn't know it. And you were, let's say, in a foreign country, they, they drive differently, they, you're not used to it, there's marks and colors on the road, and you don't understand what it means. And you're standing in a place, and you think you're safe, and then an official is there, and he says, you're standing in the danger zone. You have to go stand on that square over there. And then all of a sudden, swoops in this vehicle or this car. Now, it's a message of great news for that one to tell you where to go. Because otherwise, you were smashed. 
It's a message of good news because as the prophecy in Isaiah said, this is the way of comfort for the people because the Mighty One is coming. And salvation is to be found there and through his baptism. And so we live that way. We live producing fruits of repentance. We live looking only to him for cleansing. And it's on this, and and this is all paving the way for what happens in the next verses. We stopped our reading short. We'll focus on that next time, but you see it all comes to that crescendo, that conclusion, when Christ comes to be baptized and the Mighty One himself enters the scene so quickly. John's message is the Mighty One is coming. You think, well, how long is that going to take? And all of a sudden, he's here. He's here, and John bears that witness. And John says, I can't baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. Because he's there. All of this, you see, then, is fitting as he prepares the way for the Savior. And even as we take it and apply it, as we prepare our hearts for Christ, we prepare our hearts for Christ in in acknowledging that sermon and our need for him. In responding to live in fruit of repentance, living for the Mighty One. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give to you glory and praise. We see the, the way that we are so sinful. We see the way that we need cleansing. We need ceremonial cleansing. We need religious cleansing. We need physical cleansing of all of our sins. We thank you that you offer that in the Mighty One, and Lord Jesus, that you are he who comes. You are he who baptizes with the Spirit. But we also see that you are he who comes baptizing with fire. And so may the hearts of, of us here respond. There are two paths. May we respond in repentance and show the, the, the truth of our faith. May we not be those to hear and be the chaff that are to be burned, but those who trust only in you and are cleansed and given the Spirit. We ask